Greetings, church. My name is Chad Lewis. I'm a pastor here, and we're continuing our journey through Daniel. We hit this scene in chapter 3, and it brought some stories to mind this week from my life, just thinking about opposition and people trying to force you to conform to their ways. And when I was 15, I was saving up some money and to buy something that was very important to a 15-year-old. And it's something that many of us buy and we end up never wearing. It's a class ring. You know, you get that thing and it's like, man, this is going to be awesome. You get it and it's like, oh, it weighs my hand down too much. But I got that and we had the presenter come and he said, get something that's important to you on the side. Here's all these pictures. So I was like, ah, I can get a basketball. I really love basketball. But then I flipped through the pages and saw that there was a cross. And I was like, yeah, I take my faith seriously. I'm going to get a cross. So this time I was at a public school and I, I didn't have... Too many friends, pretty socially anxious, and just kind of shrunk back and tried to hide in plain sight. But I did have one friend, his name was Tino, and he saw that I was getting a cross on the side of my ring, and he just looked at me, and he just got, kept getting madder and madder, and it was just like, why are you getting a cross, Chad? Why are you getting a cross? It's like, well, I just, it's important to me, and this is my faith and everything. And he said, he like turned on me, he went, why are you trying to force your beliefs on everybody? I was like... I'm not, man. I don't even talk to people. What do you mean forcing my beliefs? I just want to cross on my ring. When I was 30, I had a lot of different jobs. I'd been a coach and a teacher, worked with homeless ministry, traveled around and played music as a traveling musician. And some pastors in North Carolina encouraged me to come to seminary. So I was moving here to Louisville in 2004. And I went back to Memphis to visit some friends and family, and, and one dear uh, loved one sat down with me, he's older than me, and really like a, a mentor in many ways in life. And he sat with me and was just talking to me about life and different things. He said, Chad, it's okay to take your faith, you know, and, and, and do stuff with it, but don't take your faith too seriously. Don't take it too seriously. When he said that, it was like stabbed to my heart, because I, I really, I did value his opinion, and obviously we had different belief systems. And then he just looked at me, and I know he didn't mean it condescendingly, but he just said, you need to read Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. And if you don't know Bertrand Russell, he was a mathematician, philosopher, many different things in the 1900s. But I grabbed a copy of that. It was uh, written out from some talks he had done. And, and I, even as I read it, there was a lot stirred within me. I was like, man, I know better atheistic arguments than Bertrand Russell's. There's modern atheists that have better arguments than his. Um, but I was, it, that's not the part that hurt me. I started typing out an essay, pulling out my Francis Schaeffer, C.S. Lewis books, and all my Christian philosophers. Like, oh, that's, that's a good question, but not a good exegesis. Here we go. So I, I looked that up last night, and I was like, wow, I, 30-year-old single man. I was writing essays to one person. Um, <laughs> kind of interesting. But what hurt me the most was just like, man, I cared for this guy and he cared for me. And there was a lot of opposition. It was conform, like, don't take it too seriously. And today's sermon, we really get to really that, that emphasis. Um, there is a, a definitely a pressure or a force to conform. It's like, hey, believe what you believe, but don't do it in such a way that infringes on my rights say it in your groups, but don't say it out in the public arena. And we feel that pressure all the time in these days. 
So to recap the story, Daniel and his three friends, many others, were stripped from their home, 1,700 miles away, kidnapped. Their land was conquered and taken to Babylon. They said, hey, we're taking the best of the best. We're going to assimilate you and hopefully send you back someday. And because we are the top dog culture, we're going to let you dress like us, believe like us, and then we'll send you back. And, and the Babylonian Empire will reign over the whole world. And so they didn't have much of, of their regular lives with them. They were thrust in this new system. And you read chapters 1 and 2, there's pressure, but Daniel and his three friends hold fast. In chapter 2, they're at the doorway of death, and God works in a miraculous way to uh, rescue them. And then you might get to this point, if you didn't know the stories, you'd be like, okay, Nebuchadnezzar declared, like, our God's God, he knows dreams, all this stuff, so we can breathe deep. But then you turn to chapter 3, and there's really no time to breathe. Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge golden image. Scriptures say it's 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, so it's a nine-story building, basically. Puts it in the plain of Dura, some, some think it's a mile or two outside the city. And so he does this huge thing, and, and some speculate that maybe he did this because of the dream in chapter 2. He's like, oh, I'm the golden head, and what was meant as a warning to him from God. He's like, oh, this is, this is me, this is my kingdom, it's awesome. And so he's just puffed up with pride, and he does this, this huge image. Gets everyone surrounding, and he says, hey, when the music plays, you bow down and worship, or you die. And in chapters 1 and 2, we talked about the subtle seduction of Babylon, and what was subtle at one point becomes explicit, and it's a force at this point. It's like, bow down or die. And we were joking about the musical instruments. I don't know what a trigon is, but we're going to have it for worship next week. We'll research that. But bagpipes, along with those, it's like, probably wasn't good music. I don't know. But it was music nonetheless. If you don't die, or if you don't bow down, you will die in a, in a furnace. And so the first question I had even looking at the text, it's a question I've had for many years ago. It's like, where's Daniel in this? Where's Daniel? Because he's the stud, right? He's the leader in chapter 1 and 2. He's, he's, he's not in the story. And some people might say, like, well, he was probably there and he probably bowed down. He's probably too weak to stand. And it's like, we don't believe that. For whatever reason, he's been raised up in the administration of Nebuchadnezzar, maybe he's out on a trip, taking care of business, or maybe somewhere else. But we see in the, in the passage, he's, he's just not around. And there's a principle there even with Daniel as the leader in many ways. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego could lean on his faith in chapters 1 and 2. But here's chapter 3, and they don't have him to lean on. So what they have to do, they do from their own conviction, from their own conscience. So this force to conform was huge. And if it, was, if it was big at first, it got even more intense as it went on. Because Nebuchadnezzar gets this report from these Chaldeans who say, maliciously accuse these three, and, and he brings them up. And so there's maybe a little bit of grace in, in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Maybe he likes these guys. It seems that he has some sort of affection because of their affiliation with Daniel. And he, so he gives them another chance. He's like, okay, guys, I know you probably didn't understand, but when all these instruments play, you will bow down and worship the image, or into the fire you go. So this force to conform is huge. It's in our culture today. And when we think about conforming, we want to think about what is conforming and what isn't. And this is an important question to me because I've been, 
I faced different opposition we all have in many different ways about what is conforming and what isn't. And I was at Fall Festival some years ago. I used to be the campus pastor at, at Midtown, and we worked really hard to get into St. Vincent's Cathedral. The year previous, we'd seen God do amazing things. We had baptized over 100 people in the year. We had four services. It was just a really fruitful time. So we're at this fall festival. There's like 1,000 people around in this neighborhood, Shelby Park. Poor neighborhood. No one ever threw them parties. And here we have this huge party. It's just a day filled with joy. Man, it's just joyful. There's bouncy houses, food. There's a 1970s funk band playing. Man, it's like, man, this is sweet. This is really good. And this guy comes up to me, just normal-looking guy. I'd never met him before. He comes up to me, and he says, you campus pastor here? I said, yeah, hey, my name's Chad. He said, when are you going to preach the gospel? And when he said that to me, I was just kind of taken aback. And I was like, I thought he was joking at first. And I was like, hey, man, yeah, when are we going to preach the gospel? Actually, the gospel's being preached all throughout here. Look, people being loved on. There's someone hugging somebody. Kid receiving joy on the bouncy house. That's the gospel. All right. And I was joking. But then he turned even more serious. He's like, when are you going to have the gospel presentation? I was like, okay. Shift gears in my mind here. Um, about to be in for a conversation. So I was like, time out. Who are you? And it turned out he was a local pastor from the outskirts of town or something. And so he started this apologetic about, hey, this looks like the world. You're conforming to the world. I was like, well... We have, it, it, he kept on going on. The story's way too long. The conversation took too long, too. I was like, I want to get to the cotton candy. Please, let's just <laughs> tap out on this. But his main point was, like, he pulled out his pocket Bible, started pointing in the world, not of the world. It's like, this looks like the world. It's like, well, the world doesn't get all the, the good stuff. There's joy here. We have four services on Sunday. People are out here sharing the gospel. We're not going to stop everything and give an hour service in just a few minutes. This is to celebrate. We have 20 pastors here. We talk about these things. We pray about these things. And we're building relationships. And we're seeing God do the work. This may look like the world to you, but this isn't the world. This isn't the lust of the flesh, pride of eye. This is us serving right now. We're picking up trash in these neighborhoods. This is us serving, taking a posture of humility in Christ. And this probably wasn't the best apologetic, but I was like, you're wearing T-shirt and jeans. You look like the world, dude. Maybe you should go full on Amish. So we talked and talked, and I wanted to get rude at one point, but I don't do that. And I was like, there's some garbage cans over here. If you want to go over there, you can do that. And he's like, why? It's like, Oscar the Grouch is over there. You can go talk, Mr. Cranky Pants. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I wanted to say such things, but I was kind. I was firm, prayed with them, and went and kind of had to blow off some steam, just like, man, that just made me so mad. But that's not what conforming to the world is. If I dress a certain way, if I do this, even in this passage, we see when they're thrown into the furnace, they're wearing turbans. It's like, that's not necessarily a Hebrew culture thing. That's a Babylonian culture. So even though they were dressed a certain way, they weren't conforming to the spirit of the age. And when we talk about conforming, we're talking about at the foundation is worship. We say before you praise what you prize. And these guys prized God above all. And they were not going to bow down even though the opposition was coming, even though it meant facing death through fire. In 1 Peter, 
uh, the pastor Peter puts it like this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes to you. Let me, let me start over here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's like, guys, and I love how he says beloved. He loves these people. Beloved, don't be shocked. The fiery trial will come. Trials will come, but don't be shocked. You will participate in the sufferings of Christ, but glory will be revealed. Don't be surprised. So it was subtle at first, becomes powerful and more powerful. And I'm not a prophet to look into the culture and say, uh, this is what's happening. But it, it seems as even as we are just observing what's going on, it seems like, man, the, the podcasts that I like to listen to and the, the philosophers that I, I like to listen to that aren't even Christians, it seems like there's, there's, a, there's a movement here that if you have faith in a creator, it, the, the feeling is like, yeah, you're so 19th century, man. Step into 21st century. And I, I love to dialogue about these things and just say, hey, let's, let's talk about these things. As humans, one of the, the warnings that we have is we can justify almost anything. And I think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego could have easily said like, hey, Daniel's gone. He's not having to, we don't know what to do. And basically we have this image. We know we're not worshiping this. We're just going to bow down. God's not going to be able to use us if we're dead. So let's just bow down. And then we'll go and we'll witness and do our thing because it's better for us to stay alive. But there was a line in the sand and they knew the commandments of God. They knew not to bow down to any false image. And they knew that they, they prized God and they knew that God delivered them before their faith was growing. Not faith in themselves, but faith in who God is and what he says and what he does. And so they say, it'd be folly for us to bow down. And then we see in the next section, the foundation of faith. So this force comes, and here's the foundation of faith. Daniel 3 again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So this is a bold statement. There's precision in this faith as well. The faith, or as, what is it, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel might come to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, guys, no, time out. Time out. Declare it in faith. Don't tack on that little thing if he doesn't deliver us because now you're putting a seed of doubt in your own mind and God's not going to deliver you if you have a seed of doubt. It's like, is this really? Really? Jesus in the garden. Lord, take this cup, but your will, not my will be done. We see this pattern throughout the scripture. When we think about the precision of faith, our biblical faith is not confidence in a certain set of outcomes here in this world, but it's confidence in God is good and God is able. It may go one direction, it may go another. 
Our circumstances quite often do not change, but God changes us in the midst of our circumstances. But the foundation, God is good and he is able. Biblical faith is not trust in the quality or quantity of my faith. My feelings and my emotions, they go up and down all the time. I was talking to a friend yesterday and say like depressive thoughts and just all sorts of different things, they're like a recreational activity for me. It's like, what's your hobby? Oh, I have depressive thoughts. What do you do? Oh, I do some woodwork. Oh, that's nice. Maybe I should try that. But they go up and down. Biblical faith isn't me getting myself psyched up. Believe, believe, believe. I'm a 9 out of 10. If I can reach a 10 out of 10, God will do anything that I want. Faith isn't about me and my strength, but faith is in the object of God. I'm going to try to reframe that a little bit. That was a little clunky. Faith isn't about the quantity or quality of my faith, but what am I placing my faith in? And my faith is in God who is good and God who is able to do beyond our greatest imagination. God knows best, and he can take our faith, which is like a mustard seed, and if we take it to him, he grows that stuff, man. Birds of the air come nesting in that faith. Think about it this week, thinking about preaching, and I'm on a medical treatment, and my body's very weak, and my mind, my cognition isn't. See, I had a pause there. It wasn't planned, but my, my synapses aren't firing like I, I like. And so my train of thought, and I'm like, man, I'm going to get up there and say something stupid. It's like, well, I've done that before when I was feeling better, but, so it's okay. <laughs> but um, I take the, the seed that I have. It's like, man, I don't, I don't feel adequate. It's like, well, your adequacy is not just in and of yourself. Of course, it's in the Father. It's in what he's given you. And you just stand. I showed up today, and I'm standing here right now. And that's as much faith as I have. And so I open my mouth and start speaking. If it's the best sermon I've ever done, praise be to God. If it's in the top 10 worst list, okay. God is still God. He's still good and he's still able. And so we continue to move forward. Although their situation looked incredibly bleak, their hope was not in the immediate circumstances of their lives. Their hope was in God who is able to deliver even if he chooses not to deliver in this way. And the way I think about it is this. If they go into the fire and they're delivered, praise be to God, they're delivered. If they go into the fire and they are killed, they're delivered because they're in God's hands. Either way, they're with God. We see their faith growing as they went on. Like Daniel, like we said, Daniel's not here right now in this scene. But their faith was built over time. And in chapter 2, we saw Daniel go in and he said, the story says, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So they're imploring for the Lord, give us the stream so the king won't kill us. And so we see them. Their faith is, is growing because they, they get on their knees, they plead with God, and God reveals and saves and this is the hope. Their strength wasn't based in them saying like, hey, this is what I am. This is, I've gotten strong. It's like, no, they got a bigger view of who God is, a bigger vision of his massiveness, of his care. And because of that, their faith did increase because of God, not because of themselves. And I also thought about 
their posture and thinking about our posture in the culture here today, they weren't, there's no way to tell exactly how they were saying what they were saying, but I can't imagine that they went up to Nebuchadnezzar about to go into the fiery furnace and they were like all gangster and they were saying like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I can't do good gangster. I think I'm too tired anyway. But they weren't like, yo, our guy can deliver us. You know, whatever it may be. I grew up in Memphis, so I, I know what it looks like. I just can't do it in this moment. Um, but their posture, there was, it wasn't that at all. It was like this humble hum, humility of, of surrender. And it was, it was like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I, we can stop you there. If God delivers us, he does. If he doesn't, that's okay too. But we're not going to bow down. And that's how we stand strong in dialogue with others when we face these trials. Are you in the midst of trials, difficulties, a fiery furnace of depression, of doubt, financial turmoil, relational turmoil? What, whatever it may be. And if you hear this message and you're bogged down with fear, shame, and guilt, and it's like, if I could just get 10 out of 10 on the faith Richter scale, then everything would be okay. I'd like to say, it doesn't work like that. We look at the lives of the 12 apostles. 11 of the 12, historically, we see that they were martyred. John was exiled to Patmos. We see in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 that people were sawn in two, tortured. They had to live in caves, hope for a better country to come, a better dwelling place with God. It says the world was not worthy of them. We see the trials of our brothers and sisters, missionaries on the field, Christians in China. We see them suffering for their faith when to have a Bible in parts of this world can be a death sentence. Is God good? Absolutely. Is he able to save? Absolutely. Does he rescue each one out of the fire? Not in the immediacy of the world always, but I guarantee in the immediacy of eternity, he's holding them. And God uses the voices of those martyrs to give us encouragement. I was even just thinking about Jim Elliott, who was, who was killed. Uh, Elizabeth Elliott wrote Passion and Purity, um, and I read many years ago. And Jim Elliott went as a missionary. Young man, he'd wrestled at Wheaton College. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep for that which can't be taken away. So we have his journals. So as a young man, new father, he marched in there and he was killed. As you go, what a waste. It's like, no, it wasn't a waste. He moved in faith and he wasn't delivered from that fiery furnace and how we would have desired. But his faith, his movement, his action, his journals, Elizabeth Elliot's writings for the last decades have encouraged so many to step out in faith, to move with hearts that are ablaze to God and say, I will stand. I won't bow. And that's how God works. These three valued and prized God more than their lives. And so that gets us to our final point, the flames of fellowship. It's a lengthier passage to the end here, but let's read 19 going on. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the blazing, I'm sorry, the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, found, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire bound? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Picture the rage of the king heats up the furnace seven times. The men, the mighty men, the strongest of the strong, throwing in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The flames being so hot that they are killed, not even going into the furnace, just being on the outskirts of the furnace. And so they go tumbling in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar is probably his furious squelch for a moment. It's like, that's what you get. Who can deliver you out of my hand? But then he looks and sees something crazy. It's miraculous. And he looks and sees not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their, their bonds are broken, walking free. He sees a fourth. And the text doesn't say, and we don't know through Scripture, if this was the pre-incarnate Christ walking around or God sending an angel. I like to think it was Jesus. But it, God just shows up. God is there in the midst, and he is walking in fellowship. And what an amazing sight to see. And the principle is huge. I mean, there are a lot of principles. God does not always keep his beloved, cherished children from the furnace, but he's in the midst of it with them. When we are in the darkest, deepest cave, black box, feeling completely betrayed, isolated, alone, forgotten. God is there with his arm around us. We don't always feel it. We don't always sense it. But believe me, brothers and sisters, he is there. He is holding you when you can't hold yourself. He cares more than you could dream or imagine. In the trials of life, in the loss of loved ones, in the betrayal of friendships, he is there, and he cares. He is good. He is able. He is good. He is able. This is why we go to the Dominican to share this good news. This is why we go to all parts of the world. That's why we have church planning throughout this nation. That's why we are rooted here in Louisville to share this message. And we do it through our hearts, through relationship, and say, God is good. God is able. Final thought, thinking about our day and age, I grew up with a lot of fear, a lot of turmoil in, in my life. And a lot of times when you have turmoil growing up, you're hypervigilant, you use a lot of energy, you're looking around, you hear noise, you're like there, you are just spend a lot of energy doing that. And it feels like the world is not a safe place. It's like, well, technically the world isn't safe at all. There's not much safety in this world, and we talk about safe places. And here in our day and age, we get instant updates around the world of everything bad that's happening. I mean, it's like boom, 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 boom. I get on BBC News a lot. I don't know why I just told you that. That's 
kind of my preferred news choice right now. Um, it's like catastrophe, catastrophe, tragedy, tragedy. It's all over the place, all over the place. Are we safe? I want to read you a quote from John Ortberg, who's a pastor who was a, he was mentored by Dallas Willard. And when I read this, and even read it again this week, I, it's one of the things that is just the mystery of the goodness of God and the power of God. But let me just read it to you and see how we engage with it. Dallas Willard writes that Jesus lived a life of utter trust because he understood his father to be unfailingly competent and wholly devoted. Here's the striking result. With this magnificent God positioned among us, Jesus brings the assurance that our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Really, our universe? We talk much in our day about safe places because our world seems so unsafe. Catastrophes and violence and disease blanket the earth. And yet, this is the discovery that gets made over and over in the scriptures. Lion's dens, fiery furnaces, Pharaoh's prison and the floor of the Red Sea, a battered little boat in the midst of a violent storm. All these seem to be the most dangerous, but turned out to be the safest places of all. It really is true. Our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be, not because bad things won't happen, but because, as Paul put it, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The worst weapons this world can unleash are powerless before this love. This is the discovery of the psalmist. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Even the valley of the shadow of death is a safe place. There's some nuance here, right? In the fiery furnace. If God delivers them, they're safe. If God chooses not to deliver them in this way, they're safe. Because they are with God. And that's our hope. Reflecting, I have one more story for you. I was thinking about, uh, I, I pulled out an oldie to dust off for you, an old illustration. But there was a, an itinerant pastor who was going around preaching, and this young lady came to him and said, Pastor, will you go uh, visit my dad in the hospital? He's, he's about to pass away. He's very sick. And my pastor's too busy to get out there. And so the itinerant pastor said, yeah, I'll go. So he goes to visit this older man who's sick. And he gets there, and there's this chair that's pulled right up next to the bed. Looks out of place, but it's pulled right there. And so the itinerant pastor comes in and says, hey, were you expecting me? And the old man said, no, who are you? He explains a little bit. And he said, well, why... Has someone visited you? There's a chair pulled up all the way. And he said, well, shut the, shut the door and I'll tell you what the chair means to me. And so he shuts the door and he says, the old man says, several years ago, I was just really at wit's end with Christianity and I couldn't pray. It was so difficult for me to pray. So I went to my pastor and I said, pastor, how can I learn to pray? And he turned around and pulled this huge book off the shelf and said, this is the treatise on prayer. This is what you need to read. So he got through the first page and was like, had to look up 12 words. I, I can't deal with this. So he just gave it back. Later on, he's talking to a friend, and, and the friend said, oh, prayer's, prayer's been easy for me. And he's like, no, I don't think so. 
It's like, no, it's, it's easy for me. He says, all I do is put an empty chair in front of me, and I just sit there, and I, I just talk to Jesus in the chair. It's like, what? It's like, well, the promise of Jesus, he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's with us always to the end of the age. Here's our prayers. It just helps me to put a chair there, and I just talk to him. It's like, maybe I should try that. So the old man seven years previous had tried that, and he said, I've been doing that every day since. I just put an empty chair, and I talk to Jesus. He said, today I tend to pastor, am I crazy? And he said, no, no. And so he prayed with him and, and blessed him and left. Some days later, the itinerant pastor meets up, sees the lady and says, uh, how's your dad doing? And he, she says, well, he passed away. And he says, well, tell me about it. And she said, well, he, sweet, he called me to his bed right before he, he, had, he was about to pass. And he told me a, a corny joke and, and kissed me and said he loved me. And I left for a little while. But when I came back, he had passed away. But something strange happened. Right before he passed away, he had pulled a chair right up to his bed, and he'd laid his head in the chair, and then he passed away. I don't know what that means. But the itinerant pastor was able to explain. Well, what he did is he pulled that chair up, the one he'd been talking to Jesus with, and he laid his head in the Savior's lap, and he went into glory. And that's where we are, brothers and sisters. The intimacy of God who says, see my heart. I know you, I see you, I love you, I choose you, I want you. He's like, come to me in the midst of the trial, in the midst of facing death, and lay your head in my lap. The tenderness, the affection of our Father. And this is our Jesus. I said he doesn't always keep his kids out of the fire, but there's one fire that he braved alone for me and for you. He marched to the cross bore the weight of the sin of the world so that he would pay for what was supposed to be given to us. And because him, he, he, he received the wrath of God for me and you, he gives us his righteousness and he says, remember this. And so he gave us a sacred symbol. Says, My body's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup of wine after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood, the covenant is sealed, cannot be broken. What Christ has done, it's done. It is finished. Our tradition here is to come up and reflect and say, Lord, this is your work. And you've invited me to participate in celebrating it and remembering it and stirring up my faith. And so you break off a piece of the bread, you dip it into the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits. And if you're a follower of Christ here today, we invite you to come and partake. If you're not a Christian, the scriptures say, don't do this yet, but come. Invite a, we invite you to come and dialogue with us about who Jesus is, what he promises. About our life experience, we'd love to hear your story too. And if you have deep philosophical questions, theological questions, we can start trudging through those as well. Because it is a journey. But our encouragement is to come and remember that God is for us. God is with us. God is always loving us. And if you're the fire here today, he's holding you. Let's pray together.